You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. My dad, Jay, and I are sitting on a patio under the pines in the tiny town of Gould, a few miles from Walden. You could call it a ghost town. Both its post office and school closed years ago, but it's a lovely place to sit. Hummingbirds whiz by, the Rewa Mountains loom overhead, all the snow melted off now, and much of the mountainside is standing dead from a pine beetle infestation. We're lounging next to the Powderhorn Cabins with the owner, Dick Clark, He's run this place now for 53 years. And by his side is his good friend, Rick Cornelson. You'll remember him, our tour guide of the Teller City ghost town and a lifelong North Parker. We chat about North Park history for a while. And then, like it almost always does, the conversation turns to the impacts of the super wealthy in the community. Rick says one billionaire in particular changed the way of life here, the telecommunications magnate John Malone. Before Malone came in here, we had about 360 kids in our school system. When kids. Malone came in and bought those 12 big ranches, we dropped down to 108 students. And so that's when they moved the grade school, everything down into one building. And when I was up early, when I was up here, that elementary school was full. Dick retired from a long career as an elementary school principal. Intuitively, he understands that ghost town rule about schools and post offices. With all these ranches gone by the wayside, you lose kids there too. And every year it seems like there's less and less kids in school. And you lose your school and you lose the heart of your community. On his fingers, Rick counts up how many small family ranches are left in the valley since the Club of 26 moved in. There used to be over 50. Now, there's only seven or eight. It doesn't make sense to these guys why someone would want that much land. Malone monopolizes a full quarter of North Park now. But Rick has a theory. One of the reasons Malone bought all that property on the west side, back in 1935, they decided they were going to build a dam on the Platte River and flood that whole west side as a water storage for Denver. Now Malone owns all that land. If that ever happens, he's just going to be in more megaplex. You know? Before it's over with, uh, 
Denver and the Front Range will dry up just about every stream in the state. Mm-hmm. Okay, that probably sounds wild, a rich guy stockpiling land so that he can sell its water. But actually, Colorado's population is expected to double by 2050. And most of that will happen on the Front Range around Fort Collins and Denver. That's just over the mountain from North Park. And these mountains just happen to be the headwaters of the North Platte River. There's a heck of a lot of water here, above and below ground. And the Front Range is going to need it especially with climate change. As a kid in the 80s, I remember playing on snow piles next to my house as high as my six-foot fence. You could just walk right on over. Now, Colorado's snowpack, it's often half as deep as it was in the 1950s. And it was way colder when I was a kid. So whether Malone wants to sell all the water he owns or protect it, the real question is whether, as Americans, we want to put that much environmental control in one man's hands. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. But John Malone doesn't just own North Park land. He also has bought up a large number of the small ranches just across the state line in the Platte Valley of Wyoming. Maggie Mullen grew up in Wyoming and spent a lot of her 20s visiting that valley. She's seen the area changing over the years. She decided to try and find out how the consolidation of all those family ranches is affecting this place that she loves. Here's how I've been spending a lot of my time recently. Looking at my phone, just thumbing through one piece of bad news after the other. This thing actually is a name. It's doom scrolling, you know, just an endless scroll through social media and the fire hose of information that's become our news cycle. And somehow very little of that actually makes me want to put down my phone. Instead, it's like this compulsion to read more and more news. On one of these particular bouts of doom scrolling, this was a while ago actually, I came across some reporting in Forbes magazine, the shocking doomsday maps of the world and the billionaire escape plans. So here's the gist. These super duper rich are buying up huge swaths of land to basically prepare for climate change induced end times. It really grabbed my attention. Sure, the prepping part was an interesting take, but really I wondered who are these people? What does it really mean to have your name on that much land? Plus, there was one particular person mentioned that I never heard of before. Now, the king of billionaire land grabbers, well, that's John Malone. The cable tycoon owns more than 2.2 million acres of land, according to the Land Report 100. Now, ranking second... John Malone, the largest individual private landowner in the entire U.S. And turns out some of his property is just in the next county over from me in Wyoming, Silver Spur Ranches. It's got operations in New Mexico, Nebraska, Colorado, but its headquarters are just outside Saratoga. That's a small town of 1600 in southeast Wyoming. It's out there that Malone's got his name on 50,000 acres of the Platte Valley. Call it the billionaire land grab. The rich are just buying up giant chunks of America. Robert Frank. This trend that Malone is leading the charge on, some see it as simply the rich's new favorite way to invest. 
It's tangible, it generates a lot of income, and it won't rise or fall like stocks. Plus, it's a lot of fun to fly around your helicopter <laughs> and look at all your holdings. Oh, it is. And then some people say it's about prepping for end times. We're talking setting up shop on land far from sinking coastlines, where there's soil, water, the kind of weather where you can grow your own food, plus resources like a lot of sunshine or coal to produce electricity. Of course, that's speculation. Malone has never said, or even hinted at, that climate prepping is behind his land accumulation. I wanted to know more about this guy. Of course, some of this curiosity had to do with just my general nosiness. But I really was struck by the fact that I'd missed his name completely. To go under the radar at this scale, I thought, how? You see, when people throw a lot of money around, especially on land in my neck of the woods, you tend to know their name or to have at least heard of them. They get streets, schools, and parks named after them usually. Like John D. Rockefeller, for example. His name has basically become a noun for this kind of behavior. So I started sleuthing where most people do. I Googled him. And, um, you know, the book Cable Cowboy talks about how even in the early 70s when he took over TCI, he'd been promising her that... Not sure you caught that, but they call this John Malone guy the cable cowboy. Of course, he built that company into the largest cable company in the world, so he... In the cable and telecommunications world, Malone is known to have made some serious deals since the 1970s. The kind that get you the nickname the cable cowboy, and the kind that create massive wealth, like a net worth that is currently estimated at $6.7 billion. Another thing that I came across in my internet sleuthing... Malone was named the Citizen of the West back in 2017 by the National Western Stock Show. I came across a clip of the event where Malone was honored. It's in some kind of arena with hundreds of people. And while it's definitely a black tie event, there are lots of cowboy hats too. And rhinestones and rodeo queens. There's even at least one Arabian horse that escorts Malone down a red carpet that goes right down the middle of the room. I hadn't heard of this award before now, but from what I can tell, it's prestigious in the way it's usually given to very wealthy white men who, quote, embody the spirit and determination of the Western pioneer and perpetuate the West's agricultural heritage and ideals. There's a lot to unpack there. Like, who gets to be a pioneer? And whose ideals are we talking about here? I was hoping to actually do some of that in conversation with John Malone, but he wouldn't talk to me for this episode, which was a letdown. His people told me his schedule was busy right now and would be that way for the next few months. And of the interviews with him that I can find online, they only have to do with his major business dealings. So maybe a public radio reporter in Wyoming didn't rise to the level of importance. Still, I wanted to know more about his land dealings, it sounded like the kind of thing that his neighbors would notice, especially at this size. Imagine looking over your fence and the person living next door suddenly owns everything as far as you can see. If I were them, I'd have questions. Like, what's this person buying next? And will it be the very plot of land I live on? I'd also want to know how they plan to take care of it. Can a billionaire be trusted to conserve open spaces? And What's that mean for those towns in the surrounding area and the people who live there? So I took a trip, one of my favorite drives in Wyoming, actually. 
I left my town of Laramie and headed west. The first part is across what is actually the second largest wind eroded depression in the world. Sure, it's windy, but on a clear day, you really can't see forever. And then seemingly out of nowhere is this alpine mountain range topped by Medicine Bow Peak, which is snowy most of the year and sees some pretty serious thunderstorms in the summer. From there, it's cottonwood groves tucked into the prairie, and then I arrive in Saratoga. My first stop, the Saratoga Museum. That's where I met Sherry McKay. She's the local historian. Well, I was born in the house that I'm living in. My mother was born in the house she, uh, that I'm taking care of while she's in the nursing home. Uh, so yeah, we've been here since about 1910. For the last three or four years, Sherry's volunteered her time here at the museum. It's on the south end of town, right off the main drag, and situated right between the Townsell grocery store and its downtown area. The museum's got all kinds of stuff here, from antique tools white homesteaders used to survive long winters, to their black and white photographs. Even the building itself is an artifact. This was, this, uh, this was the Saratoga Encampment Railroad Depot. Before this, Sherry McKay was a teacher, and before that, she was a teenager dead set on leaving Wyoming. When I left in 66 and graduated, I wasn't coming back. (laughs) Is that how kids say? I know that story. Yeah. (laughs) I grew up in Casper, population 50 or so thousand, which by Wyoming measure is a city, but nonetheless, I was pretty determined to eventually live pretty much anywhere but this state. Though I didn't go to college in the real world, i.e. anywhere but Wyoming, I imagined getting my degree and then a job somewhere else. But then, of course, here I am. Much of it having to do with the job and the fact that my family's here. They've actually been here for a while. My great-great-grandparents came here from Iowa to homestead and farm. Eventually, they switched to working on the railroad since the money was better. And then later on, some went to work in the public education system. Sherry says that's also where she made her living. They called up and needed a teacher out in a country school 90 miles from anywhere, and they talked me into coming back and retired from teaching from here about uh, four years ago. Uh, I spent about 23, 24 years teaching here. Part of this place's draw on Sherry those many decades ago Her family has been here in the Platte Valley for a long time. For instance, near the front door of the museum is a table with an open copy of a book called Saratoga and Encampment, an album of family histories. It's an old book with thin pages and a mint green cover. Sherry flips through it for us. These were things that were put in by the families during the time they were compiling this and had the project going, you know, and the pictures that they sent in. And so, oh, that's my mom and dad. That's your mom and dad right there. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's Lawson. That's my aunt. Okay, that's my mom's sister. This is almost like your own family album. Yeah, and this is Uncle Jack. He had, and, and Russell had the mine on the top. That was my dad's side of the family. So, we're, oh, we're right here in the middle. Sherry's family weren't ranchers or railroaders like a lot of their neighbors. Th- they were rodeo people. Rodeo and timber, which her great-grandfather did until the age of 103. Found him under a tree in Lander with an axe across his uh, lap. He just finished cutting a tree down and sat down and died. Sherry's family has long stuck around through boom and bust and watched as Saratoga changed. 
Other times, Sherry says they watched it stay about the same. I mean, it's the same buildings. Our buildings never change. If you look at my pictures and, and stuff, we just change facades and, and relabel them. But for Sherry, there's at least one thing that sticks out right now. I can only, right now, on my hand of, of count the other day, uh, a friend of mine who was a native here, I think we were counting maybe five or six family ranches that are still available, uh, still working in this area. Like John Malone's ranch. So I ask her, does she know the guy? I never met the man. I have no idea if he spent, spends much here. Here is where I'm hoping she'll give me some insight. I ask her what the community makes of one guy owning that much land in the valley. Oh, well, I'm kind of a reserve person, res- reserve person, so I don't know a lot of that. But I, 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 in other words, Sherry is not one to gossip, but she also tells me this. And those big ranches now really aren't. I don't get the feeling that they're really wanting us to go and help support them or go to their place to eat or whatever. I mean, it was kind of like when Obaldi was first started. You know, you weren't allowed to, the Valley people weren't allowed membership. Oh, so. what, what's Obaldi? I haven't heard. Obaldi Club. Sherry calls it a big, fancy resort that sits on the top of the hill east of town, which is pretty accurate. It's been a members-only club since it opened back in 1962. And I worked there for several summers for college, but... Uh, it was, it, you couldn't get, now you can, but in those early days, rich, rich people, they started building homes out there and, and uh, you, you couldn't get memberships, you couldn't eat out there, you, you would just help, you know. To get a look for myself, I later check out its website where there are photos of a pristine 18-hole golf course. It's an oddly lush and green thing to see in the middle of a landscape that spends most of its time either covered in snow or parched for moisture. And from what I can tell, it also has some really good fishing, where the North Platte and Encampment Rivers snake across the property. But even more than that, its website says it offers, quote, a true Western experience, unquote. And like Sherry says, it's one that will cost you. The price isn't listed online, which to me says, if you have to ask, you probably can't afford it. Sherry says the resort is maybe not what it once was. But it dropped a little bit, you know, compared to what, you know, Brush Creek's the rising star right now. Yeah, I'd heard of Brush Creek before. It's another resort in the area, the one I've never stepped foot on. Just a few virtual glimpses here and there through the Instagram accounts of several celebrities that vacation there. Not to mention, it's hard not to notice the mile marker after mile marker as you drive across Carbon County that are marked with the ranch signs on the side of the road. It's huge. And these huge parcels of land were once smaller operations run by families. Families with kids that filled the local school. Families that did eat at the local restaurants and shop at the local stores. But as Sherry says, not so much anymore. Most of it's gone into bigger ranches, and as you know. And that's been kind of the history of the valley. Sherry says it goes through this cycle. It's not new, she says. More like We just happen to be at this point in the rotation. Sometimes the valley is dotted by smaller individual family operations. Two or three get bought up by the same person and they're consolidated into one ranch. Then a portion of that larger operation is sold off, creating a small ranch once again. But in the case of Silver Spur, dozens of ranches got bought up during the telecommunications boom of the late 80s and 90s, and have remained under the same operation since. 
That's John Malone's place. And those decades since have marked a long time to be in just one person's hands. And that's not likely to change. That cycle that Sherry described probably won't begin again. That's because it's been said John Malone intends to leave the land to a trust. Another part of the consolidation has to do with management, like hiring on the previous owners or managers to work the land. Malone did that too, so that's where I head to next, after the break, to have a talk with his right-hand man. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. Hit the road for... Silver Spur Ranches. It's just about, Connie said it was just about 13 miles outside of Saratoga, like you're headed to encampment. A little rainy today. Out here, the spaces are wide open enough that you can see where exactly the storm begins and ends and where it's headed. Bunch of cottonwoods, kind of dipping down into a valley. See some cows on the right side. Those might be silver spur cows, actually. I don't know. I almost missed the turn. That's despite the huge overhead gate that says silver spur ranches. Along this dirt road are some outbuildings and the usual ranch equipment. And then it stops at headquarters, which is a longer single level building that looks more like a house. Alright, got my mask on. I step inside to what looks like a common area with leather couches and photos of the ranch and cowboys past up on the wall. There I meet Connie. She's been helping me set up a time to talk with Thad York, the manager out here. Let me grab him. He just walked in the door. Yeah. Uh, Soon Thad walks in from another room. He's got on a cowboy hat and has a long, peppery beard. Just like Sherry back at the museum, Thad and his family have been at this for a while. He's third generation, in fact. I did. I grew up on the ranch. I started cowboying on the ranch when I was eight years old in the summers. Cowboying is really demanding work. I know this from the ranch kids I grew up with. You're up way before the rest of the world to do hard physical labor in all kinds of weather. And then you usually don't get home until after dark. Or during calving season, you don't go home at all because you've got to keep eyes around the clock on heifers waiting to give birth. I've had people say, oh, that must have been awful to have to work at that young of an age. It was the best time of my life. It was, you know, I look back with great fondness of those, those years. I mean, the guys that I rode with were like my big brothers. And, you know, so growing up on this ranch was, uh, it was incredible. But despite that connection to the people and the land, when Thad was a teenager, headed off to college, he had different ideas for his future. I'll be real honest, when I left here, when I graduated from high school, I had no intention of coming back to the ranch. It's the same old story. Small town Wyoming kid hits the road with one direction in mind. And for Thad, that meant visions of becoming a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. He got a couple of degrees, and then he spent some time in the corporate world. 
But then his father passed away and everything changed. He ended up right back at the ranch. Basically packed everything up and got up here as quickly as I could. And, and you know, the people that own the Silver Spur asked me to stay on. And, and I will say this, I have a very close relationship with the people that, that own these ranches and have had that, that relationship for a long time. Thad was just a 12-year-old kid when John Malone bought the Silver Spur. So when he came home decades later and took over for his dad on a ranch they didn't own, it didn't feel like he was working for the capital M man. He describes it more like carrying on a tradition, a kind of passing of the torch. I had a lot of family on this ranch at that point. You know, my mom was still here. I had a brother here, uncle, grandfather, um, that were all a part of this operation. And I felt it was my responsibility if I was going to be asked to come back that I I give that an opportunity, give that a chance. The whole setup behind Silver Spur made me think of what we're seeing with ranches across the country. A lot of them are in trouble. Margins are razor thin. And more than that, fewer people my age are interested in taking over the family's operation. In fact, in 2012, only 6% of farmers were under 35. This generation is off doing other work including the kinds of jobs that Thad would probably be doing if Malone hadn't offered him a job. It struck me that maybe this kind of setup is a lifeline for these younger generations of ranchers. And in that way, a lifeline for towns like Saratoga, too. If young folks stick around, it's not as likely to turn into a ghost town. I asked Thad what he made of that impression. No, I, I think that that's right. You know, I it, it's hard on a small operation today to make it work. I also asked Thad if he thought Saratoga is in danger of becoming a ghost town, because that's the thing. Saratoga isn't a ghost town. It's a happening little town in Wyoming and has a thriving tourism industry thanks to its world-famous fly fishing and hot springs. You know, small towns are, are based on the employment that, that exists around them. And, and so we're, we're an active part of the community. We're involved in a lot of different things. I did some digging to see if this checked out, and it did. Back in 2014, Saratoga's Chamber of Commerce awarded Silver Spur the Business of the Year for doing things like employing over 120 full-time workers in Carbon County and doing their purchasing from local merchants. Plus, when it came to building a community center, the Spur helped fund that too. You know, it's it's not just about the Silver Spur. It's about the area that the Silver Spur's in and, and what we can do to, to benefit the people that are in this area. Malone's dealings look a little different south of the Wyoming border, down in Melody's hometown of Walden, about 70 miles away. Folks down there say the Silver Spur hasn't been so supportive of the community. He contributes very little to the county. Uh, in fact, he he didn't even hire, and he brought in a bunch of Peruvian workers to, to which, nothing against Peru, but it's cheap labor, and they don't come into town hardly at all. That's Walden, Colorado's mayor, Jim Dustin, and Melody's mom, Carol, agreed. When I was teaching um, English as a second language to the Peruvians that John Malone brought up here from Peru and let go all the local cowboy people, cowboy on the ranches, let them go. 
because he could pay the Peruvians so much cheaper. And they resented it, too. I mean, they would say, you know, comment about it. I mean, they didn't speak English hardly at all. I got the gist of what they were saying, and they resented the fact that they got paid half. It might be worth pointing out that Walden doesn't have the hot springs or several posh clubs that Saratoga does. It's rougher around the edges. But is that because the man who owns most of the land there is playing favorites, showering Saratoga with community centers, and hiring locals while leaving Walden to sink deeper and deeper into decline? I can't say what kind of responsibility Malone feels for this place, but I know other people who do feel that responsibility. Like a friend of mine I've heard go on and on about this valley and its North Platte River. I will never leave. I love Wyoming. Born and raised in another rural part of the state, a little town called Wheatland, Cole Sherrard was a fishing guide in Saratoga back in the late 90s. Yeah, I think you might actually be the most obsessed fly fisherman. Oh, there, there may be bigger ones out there, but you I'm think? close. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's my life. Keep me on a river. That's my, that's my church. But the North Platte isn't an easy river to access. That's because of a whole bunch of private land, loans included. You see, a lot of rivers in the West have public put-ins and takeouts. The North Platte does too, but around here, they are fewer and far between. That makes it hard to get to. But Cole says it also makes it a quiet and secluded river to be on. He doesn't guide anymore, and like a lot of old guides that now work behind a desk, it's pretty easy to get him to wax poetic about this place. The North Platte has this epic kind of tea color. It's different from a lot of rivers, and again, part of that's because it's not dam controlled, but part of it's the sediment that it runs through through North Park, Colorado. And it, to me, it was just always kind of this mystical color. So it's just one of these kind of magical places. And I've been really fortunate to be able to fish all over the West. But I will always come. This is, this is my place. Especially in early June. Cole says that's when everything is starting to green up again after a long fought winter. And then you're looking through the willows to see if you can see the salmon flies that are starting to molt and come out of the bottom of the river. But once the sun he started heating things up, those bugs would begin to fly and do their mating ritual. You know, the smell of the, the grass, and there was always dew and the fresh air. And uh, always a chance you could see a mountain lion or a bear, and, and more so lately, moose and elk. And then the first cast and waiting for those fish to come up and eat the fly. And, and when it all comes together, it's really a magical, magical moment. One of the coolest things you'll ever see. But like I said before, experiencing that magic depends on access. The land around the North Platte is owned by the few, so it's largely enjoyed by the few. Of course, that means it's not overcrowded, which can be a good thing for, say, wildlife. And some argue a landscape with fewer humans is one that's wilder. But what about more ordinary folks? What's this kind of conservation by privatization method mean for them? It's the kind of quandary that is right up Justin Farrell's alley. Remember him? He's the sociologist Melody spoke with in the last episode. Who benefits from conservation? And, and that's something, again, that I think we need to uh, reconsider. If you'll remember, Justin calls it the new Rockefeller paradigm. Conservation is simplified and reduced down to basically one idea, and that is John Rockefeller's legacy and trying to 
mirror that legacy today and try to, you know, essentially purchase up land and conserve it somehow. Farrell says these new Rockefellers are looking to make a pretty big splash. And that could mean in those very communities where they own the land or at some cocktail party in San Francisco or New York. Either way, it's trying to build on a legacy that is in the West's public history. You see it on the names of highways and in national parks. There's also this moment Farrell describes in his book, Billionaire Wilderness, where one of the wealthy people he's interviewing has loosened up, and he tells Justin a pretty fitting joke. It goes, what's the definition of an environmentalist? The guy who bought this place last year. I remember laughing out loud when I read that, probably because there's some truth to it. When a millionaire or billionaire's wealth is tied to the conservation of land, it's suddenly in the better interest of their money to preserve it. But despite the possibility of perhaps being motivated by increasing or protecting one's wealth, conservation is often thought of in a positive light with little criticism. It's an easy concept to latch on to if you um, don't want to really dig any deeper into what conservation could and should do, um, which involves all sorts of things like beginning with climate change. In the town of Saratoga, that means more flooding. A lot of the small businesses are right on the river, and many others are on the floodplain. It might take just one of those summers that Cole Sherrard described, where the river gets blown out to wipe out a business. And remember the town's sole grocery store? It may not be in a high-risk area for wildfire, but it does sit right on the edge of town. So one risk it faces is what happens when the few delivery routes truck use close thanks to the fire. That means supply routes into urban areas like Saratoga get cut off. And that almost happened to Walden just this summer. Not to mention, these small town groceries are often owned by chains that easily fall into bankruptcy or get gobbled up by private equity firms and stripped bare. But every year, these mountains burn bigger and brighter. Both Wyoming and Colorado saw huge ones this season, some of the biggest in their recorded histories. John Malone could fly out if he needed to. That's not an option for locals. It's not that the Silver Spur property is invincible to these threats, but it's worth pointing out that the stakes are higher for other townspeople. Their business isn't a hobby, it's their livelihood. I asked Thad York what he imagines for the future of Silver Spur. He says he hopes these ranches will be ranches 100 years from now. Hopefully we'll always be able to kind of navigate the, the landmines as they come and, and keep these, these operations much as they are, you know, into the foreseeable future. Thad confirms to me the Malone's plans to leave the land they own into a trust. We're lucky in that, you know, the owners don't want to see development. They don't want to see these ranches change. They want to see this way of life continue and they want to see the land preserved. In its, in its natural form. Which is great, but also means it won't cycle back to small family-owned ranching either. That last bit, the idea of the land in its natural form, brings me back to that Citizen of the West Award. Remember, the one given to John Malone back in 2017? The National Stock Growers Association gives the award to someone who, quote, perpetuates the West's agricultural heritage and ideals. I've been thinking about that word, perpetuate. One definition is to make something continue indefinitely. Maybe I shouldn't get hung up on one little word, but it's just something I've been thinking about in all of this. Perpetuate 
isn't the kind of word that looks ahead at the future. It's also not the kind of word that lends itself to imagining something different or beyond monopolization of open spaces. It makes me think of the many times I've found myself driving down a Wyoming highway and caught my eye on a mountainside or a butte or some kind of desert looking expanse and thought, man, that looks cool. I'd like to go walk around over there, do some hiking, maybe some climbing. Wonder what the view is like. And then I spot a fence line and those kinds of fantasies are quickly squashed. When I spoke with Justin Farrell, we also talked about this ongoing tension. If you look at population growth in the West, he says a good deal of that is the wealthy moving in. We ought to pay attention to that since he calls it a kind of sleeping giant. I do think people undersell it because they're hesitant to take seriously um, wealth in a rural area. They sort of just see it as like, oh, Ted Turner's out there in the middle of nowhere doing his thing. And, but there are a lot of, there, there are not a lot of Ted Turners, but there are a lot of wealthy people who I do think are gonna have an impact as we move forward. What that sleeping giant means for the open spaces, how they get conserved, what they look like in five, 10, 100 years from now, and whether the communities nearby are thriving or just props for the seasonal wealthy, well, it might just come down to what makes the most financial sense for the people with their name on it. Maggie's reporting really brings it home for me how rural towns are literally on the front lines. I know a local kid from my hometown who's putting his life at risk on fire crews battling these wildfires. And I know the people working the land, growing the food, monitoring the wildlife, making the hard decisions about our open spaces. And these are the open spaces that are so integral to our national identity as Americans. So far in this series, we've heard about the hard decisions people are making to live in small towns, about booms and busts, about how the wealthy are affecting main streets and the traditional cultures of these places. But what about the people living right now in these towns? What happens when the poverty and mental health of these communities starts to crumble? We definitely have the depression and the the ranchers, the ones that aren't going to ask for help, the ones that just deal with it, and certainly the risk of suicide is much higher. We return to my hometown of Walden for that story, next time on The Modern West. How has the consolidation of family ranches affected your community? Share your stories on social media at Modern West Pod. I'm Melody Edwards. Maggie Mullen reported this episode. Aaron Jones is our story editor. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. Our executive producer is Micah Schweitzer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.